Hello and welcome to the Mark Rose Podcast. If you know me, you know I love good research. I love science that we can take and apply to our lives and change them, deepen our relationships, cultivate more intimacy, and and transform our life itself just by the connections that we create, the community that we foster. And when I ran into the book, How to Not Die Alone, The Surprising Science That Will Help You Find Love by Logan Yuri, I was so pumped. This book is so entertaining, and I reached out to Logan and asked, would you be so kind as to come on the podcast and share with my people, you, some tips, some tricks, some ideas, some science on how how to do just that, how to not die alone. And I love the title. So I'm really excited to share today's episode with you. It was so fun to have a conversation with her and so relatable in all the things. And before we do that, wherever you listen to this, please subscribe to the podcast, share this episode if you love it and any ones that you do love and tag me please on Instagram, Facebook, wherever you do that. And also please give it a five-star review and a written review that helps get it into more people's ears. I wanted to take a quick break in this episode to talk to you about the greatest struggle that people have in dating. And that is asking the right questions. And not just the right questions, but asking hard questions. Questions that determine if someone wants what you want, what you are, what your relationship status is, that that deepen vulnerability and intimacy. And ultimately asking the right questions allows you to get to know someone on a deeper level gets to know their values, get to know whether they're a good fit for you. Now, I recognize that when I get feedback on asking questions, people say that's too hard to ask or it's too soon to ask that or whatever the excuse or thought or feeling or fear might be. And so I thought, shit, let me ask the hard questions. And that's why I created Create the Love Cards. Create the Love Cards is created with such intention for you to deepen your conversations on dating. And because of that, The deck, when you open it up, it fits two smartphones. So you can put your phone inside the box as you take the cards out so you can both be present. Now, if someone doesn't want to play, I'm like, swipe left. That's a red flag. Like, who doesn't want to play a game? Second, I've got it in four sections. So we've got foreplay, diving deeper, too much information, because would it be a deck from me if it didn't have TMI, and building chemistry. So there's four sections for you to explore the landscapes of one another and see if you're a good fit. If you want to have deeper conversations, if you want to take this deck of cards on your dates or on your date night, or you think this would be a good gift for a couple, then go to createthelove.com slash cards. I put them at a really accessible price of 30 bucks and I can't wait for you to check them out. They've received rave reviews. People are loving them. I have actually one friend who took them out on its second date with someone that she was hitting it off with. And after she got the answers to the questions that the deck provided, she realized that this person was not a good fit and swiped left and now is in a relationship with someone she loves. So that's what dating is about, is it's about filtering. And also my intention is to support you along that journey to not just finding the person that you want, but if you're with them, asking the questions that help create and deepen intimacy. So go to createthelove.com slash cards and grab a set now. So without further ado, here is Logan Yuri. What's up, everybody? Today, I mean, I don't think we could have a title that hits us more in the solar plexus than the beautiful author of this book, Logan Yuri. Welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much for having me. The book title, How to Not Die Alone. I mean, that really tells you what we're going to do here, doesn't it? There you go. I love that title. I'm curious how you came up with it. Yeah. So I'm really extroverted. I love spending time with people. And when I was working on my book, I was like, how can I write a book? It's it's such a solo activity. Mm-hmm. And so what I did was I set up this accountability system where every three weeks I would ask a friend to host a dinner. I'd give them some money for it. And they'd invite 10 people to read two chapters of my book. And that kept me really on a schedule. I had to write the two chapters. People were going to read it. And now I have external accountability. And so at one of these dinners, this guy was like, I just need this to exist. I need to be told how to not die alone. And I was like, <laughs> oh. yes, that is the book. And I like it because I feel like I imagine somebody, they're in the airport, they're looking at the books on the shelf and they see how to not die alone. And they stop in their tracks and they say, damn, am I on a path towards dying alone? I don't want to be. And then they buy right. the book and it shows them, a way to overcome that. I love that. And I mean, to give people a little history, I mean, you're a behavioral scientist that turned dating coach, and you're also the director of relationship science at the dating app Hinge. That's me. So what a beautiful thing to bring behavioral science to something that certainly requires behavioral science. And so what made, so the first, obviously the desire to say like, hey, I don't want, I want people to be able to find and enter relationship. What's the general premise or thing that someone can find within the experience of the book? Yeah, thanks, Mark. I really like the way that you phrased that. And just to give people some background, you know, behavioral science is this field of looking at how we make decisions and how we often make decisions that are against our own best interests. And so there's all these academics out there that are studying how do we get people to save more money? How do we get people to spend less? How do we get people to exercise more. And look, those are all great things that we should focus on. But I felt like no one was really applying this amazing field to love and dating. And Mark, I'm sure you've come across this all the time, but sometimes there's this feeling of, oh, love isn't serious. Love isn't something that should be studied, right? It's this organic, natural thing. But you know what? Relationships are the cornerstones of our lives. They determine our health, happiness, life satisfaction, of course, they're worthy of study in every academic way. And so that's why I was, you know, when I wrote my book proposal, I was like, Google the word behavioral economist. It is all old white men, many of them Israeli. Like, I want to be in that Google search talking about love and dating. Yeah, what a, well, and, and to know, like, of course, it makes sense from a perspective of when we think about love and the impact pain, and, and the experience of relational outcomes can have on our lives. And as you said, the positive impact that relationships have on our inflammatory process. I know in the Harvard Men's Study, which is now, I believe, called the Wellbeing Study, they see that even healthy relationships have a protective effect mm-hmm. in terms of pain, but also from cognitive perspective too. And so I love that you brought these two worlds together. And so where where do people start in this adventure of your book? Where do you start people, certainly in your dating, as a dating coach too? What is sort of the beginning point? Yeah, so the premise of the book is that a great relationship is the culmination of good decisions. Make good decisions and you propel yourself into the relationship of your dreams. Make bad decisions and you are doomed to repeat the same bad patterns over and over again not getting into a relationship or getting into one that you don't want to be in. 
And this is just such an important point for people to remember because I have people emailing me in their 60s and 70s saying, you know, I've been dating for this long or I've been in relationships this long. Like, look, the amount of time you've been dating doesn't mean you're better or worse at it because if you're repeating the same patterns for 40 years, it's the same thing. And so I'm like, let's break down the small moments that got you here and let's make different choices. And so the beginning of the book is you're holding this book you want to find a relationship and so far it hasn't worked out for you. Let's explore your dating blind spots. Let's explore the patterns of behavior and ways of thinking that are holding you back from finding love, but that importantly, you can't identify on your own. And so then there's a quiz that helps people see which of these three types are they and each of those types suffers from a dating blind spot. Ooh, so they get to see their possible room for expansion. Let's call it that. Love it. Yes. Room for expansion. Is there a common one out of the three or or can you share with us what those three may be? Yeah, sure. So first of all, everyone loves a quiz. So it's been fun to have people self-identify. I bet they do. Yeah. (laughs) The first thing, uh, you know, they all suffer from unrealistic expectations. And the first one is the romanticizer. And this is the person, I'm sure you've come across a lot of them. They love love. They're very focused on the soulmate. They're very focused on he's going to look like this and we're going to meet in this rom-com meet cute and it's all going to have this fairy tale. And once we meet, it's going to be effortless. Yeah, that's perfect. I like that one. Yeah. And so the second one is the maximizer. This is the person who always is wondering what else is out there. Could I be 5% happier with somebody else? Could my girlfriend be 10% hotter, 10% more ambitious? I haven't dated everyone in the world. And is there somebody who could be better or a better fit for me, right? It's a pursuit of perfection. And then the third type is the hesitator and they feel like they're not lovable yet, right? They have unrealistic expectations of themselves. They say, I'll be ready to date when I lose 10 pounds, when I have a more impressive job. They're always you know, they're just not ready to date. And why would they want to go out there if they can't put their best foot forward? And they really miss out on getting better at dating because dating is a skill and learning what type of person is going to make them happy long-term. And, you know, nobody is ever, nobody ever wakes up feeling a hundred percent ready for anything. No. And and what you're saying shatters this, all three invite the shattering of the illusion that in somehow love is going to save us. Love is going to be this man. I mean, I remember having a friend who said to me, I know I'll know my person when I meet them because they'll just get me. And I was like, I mean, I know you and you're kind of difficult. <laughs> and so like you have a lot of nuances and I wouldn't place love and soulmate in such an unrealistic, mm-hmm. like who taught you that? I don't want to know. And and I, if I had your book back then, I would have placed it conveniently in her hands. But I'm curious with the three different archetypes, is there a one that you see more common than others? Or maybe if we're speaking in a more heteronormative perspective, Mm -hmm. is there one that's more, or sorry, more gender normative? Is there one that you see more in each gender? Yeah. And so it's funny. I I think I literally have one of the questions in the quiz is, do you believe that there's one person out there for you? And when you meet them, you'll just know. And, you know, romanticizers say yes to that. So what's interesting is in my work as a coach, I saw almost exclusively romanticizers and maximizers. And if we're talking in gender normative terms, slightly more female romanticizers, I think that they just absorbed more cultural context around Disney Disney movies. Yeah. Yeah, Right. It's like princess Ariel, all of that. 
And then there were slightly more male maximizers, although I, I identify as a maximizer and I think there are a lot I was of a maximizer female sure. maximizers. Yeah, I bet you are a maximizer. But then what's so interesting is like, okay, I didn't see hesitators because people aren't going to pay money to speak to a dating coach if they don't even feel ready to date. But now that the book is out and in terms of the pandemic, which just gave people another excuse not to date, getting emails from tons of hesitators. So it really shows me that the population has a big you know, there's a lot of each of them. But I think from a cultural perspective, maximizers are maybe the most interesting in that I think our society is really exacerbating this problem. Because what happens is you can go to Amazon and type in white shoelaces and you have 20,000 options of white shoelaces. So then you go to dating and you think, oh, how can I rate every possible person? How can I turn over every stone? And you you have this, you want to have a complete set and then decide, but that's not how dating works. At a certain point, you have to choose someone, take a leap of faith and create the relationship you want. It's not about finding the perfect person. It's about building that relationship. It's interesting to think that that paradox of choice, one, you know, it's like when you have Disney movies and rom-coms contributing or sorry, like confounding or adding to also this unlimited choice, what is seemingly unlimited. Mm -hmm. I can imagine that's just a recipe for fucking disaster because it's like, not only am I, because if you lived in a small town with 14 Mm -hmm. possible mates, you're like, I can romanticize or maximize as much as I want. Not happening. But when you change your geography, you know, when you run out of people on like Tinder and it has that little lonely circle with a radar that's like, no one is around you. It's like you just change your city so you can find more people. It's like this constant search, but never really sitting in the complexity and the challenge that, I mean, you're married, so you know what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about. The challenge that long-term relationship and true Mm -hmm. relationship offers, which it's like, we're also really averse to discomfort in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways, you know? And so I'm curious your thoughts on all that. Yeah. So first of all, I've definitely looked at the background of the three types. I think the Disney movies, the rom-coms, even social media, right? When you go on Instagram and all you see is that perfect side of people and the sunset kiss, even though you intellectually know that that's just a filtered part of their lives, your brain is still interpreting that as this is what the world is. Everyone else has a partner. Everyone else is now getting married and having a kid. I'm alone or I'm in a relationship and it sucks, but everyone else's relationship is perfect. And so I think the the misrepresentation of the messiness of relationships in rom-com, in Disney movies and in social media really creates the romanticizer. And I think about this term I coined called the happily ever after fallacy, which is the mistaken belief that the hard work of love is finding somebody because yes, that Mm. is hard. That's only when the hard work begins. (laughs) That shit is like, yeah, welcome to the door, you know, (laughs) because the path after that is versions of yourself that you've never known, (laughs) versions of your partner, the death of the romanticizer, the death of the maximizer. They all have, there's a moratorium in there too. And you know this right in the beginning, it's the honeymoon period and you're riding on hormones and your brain is literally interpreting that feeling of love as being on drugs, right? It stimulates the nucleus accumbens, the same part of our brain. If we were doing Coke, that's what would light up. That's what love feels like, but that fades. And so what are you left with? And so, yeah, it's hard to find someone, but it's also really hard to make it to year two, year seven, year nine, et cetera. And so when we set people up thinking, all right, you snag the guy, now you're ready. No, like 
you're just ready for the next hard part. So true to what you said about like the same parts of our brains. Cause I think of like, it's hard for us to equate an areola being like a line of cocaine, you know, like (laughs) even just like someone saying, I'm interested in you too, being this like shot, just oxytocin and all the things that, you know, sometimes make our brains fall asleep. Like we're like, oh my God, I, that lusty feeling it's almost like our loins. My dad used to say to my brother and I, it was pretty funny. He used to say that there was not enough brain, there was not enough blood in our bodies to perfuse both heads at the same time. <laughs> so, so we needed to be mindful of which one was making decisions. And when you're like 19, 20, mm-hmm. that's great advice if I could hear it. And I also wasn't, I'd never done cocaine, but certainly been around a few areolas. And I know that feeling of just like, you know, where you're not paying attention to the red flags you are and the red flags they are or whatever it might be. Oh, yeah. No, I love that advice from your dad. And it it definitely corresponds with the chapter in my book that's called Go for the Life Partner, Not the Prom Date. And Mm. the idea is that, you know, who did you go to prom with, right? Like, I remember my prom date, I knew he'd look good in a suit. I knew he was a good dancer. He'd fit in with my friends and our limo, and maybe we'd sleep together at the end of the night, right? That's what was on my mind. I wasn't saying to myself, will he pick up our kids from the dentist? Is he honest? Is he reliable? (laughs) Will he hold my purse in the oncology unit of the cancer center, Mm -hmm. right? I was just like, it's freaking prom, and I'm 17 years old. And that's fine. I think it's fine if 17-year-olds make decisions that way, right, with their their other head. But then you have to grow up. And- Mark, I see these people all the time. I'm sure these people are in your course and they talk to you where they're 35 and they're still going after the prom date. And they're like, why won't he commit? Why am I paying for everything? Amen. Because you're not finding a true partner. You're finding somebody to mentor. You're finding somebody to drag along with you. Like find a life partner, find somebody that's going to do life with you, write that life story with you. And that is why at a certain age, maybe it's in your early 20s, early 20s, depends on your whole trajectory. And if you want to have kids, et cetera, you have to start looking for the life partner. And that's when you make decisions with the brain or the head, the head in your brain. <laughs> yeah, the brain. Yeah, the right one, the good right, one. Yeah. Not that the other one's a bad one, but you know, yeah, what I mean. one, one has different outcomes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I appreciate you saying that so much because I think a lot of us, as you said at the very beginning, is we have these continued relational outcomes we blame it on the pool of dating. We blame it on what's out there mm-hmm. and blame it on fate. Mm-hmm. But we're not actually taking responsibility for the mm-hmm. choices that ended that we ended up in these sort of situations and relationships. And we're missing the very wisdom that lives in the continued relational, let's call it a rock bottom, when we're not getting outcomes that we actually say we want. When you see that what they say they want versus what they're actually getting. I mean, that must be a huge red flag to you. Yeah. First of all, I just love the way that you phrase that because I think that is a really succinct explanation of what my whole philosophy is, which is if you come to me as a dating coaching client and you say, it's the men in San Francisco, it's the women in LA. It's always, I live in the, ask everyone, they live in the worst dating city in the country, right? New York wants to be the worst. New York and LA want to be the worst. But I have just sometimes, and they just always blame it on the pool, the dating apps, this and that. I'm like, 
turn the mirror on yourself. Like, what are you doing? What are your patterns? And that's what the whole book is about. That's what my whole philosophy about is that you actually have way more power than you know, because you are making decisions that wind up where you are and look around a bunch of your friends in that same city have found someone and they're not hotter than you. They're not more successful than you. There's not, there's nothing that they're doing other than they have better habits than you in dating and relationships. And so it's, I have this story in the book about a girl who came over and she was like, these first dates are a mess. None of them are turning into second dates. And I was like, all right, I'm going to set you up with the guy. I know you're both going to know what's going on and he's going to give me feedback. And he called me and he's like, she completely steamrolled me. I thought I was at a stand-up comedy performance. She ordered for me. She was so big, so overwhelming. There was no space for me. And when I told her at first, she was a little embarrassed, but then she started grinning and she was like, it's, not them. It's me. I can change this. And it was that light bulb moment for her to be like, yeah, "Yeah, like I'm, I I'm trying to be interesting instead of interested. And we did a lot of work for her to create space for people for, you know, it's not that she was going to become demure and her whole personality would be different, but she could just be like a little toned down and ask more questions about other people. And so really, I think the takeaway here that we're both saying is, Instead of blaming all of the external factors, what are the things within your control that you can improve? Yeah, I think the woman, the type of archetype you're talking about, which can be any human, is fascinating because often, and I think this is due to the messaging of social media and, you know, empowerment, et cetera, et cetera. There's this idea, but this is just who I am. This is just mm-hmm. like, take it or leave it. And, mm-hmm. and there's an energy to that statement that is guarded, like walled and bulldozy. And it sort of reaffirms this, like, I'm too much for people and I'm going to continue to prove it, but I'm just going to use this idea that this is just my, myself. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. I, I love that. And I'm, I'm smiling because I'm, I'm um, imagine somebody listening to us and having that exact same thought, right? Oh, this is anti-feminist. This is thinking that women can't take up space. Like I love taking oh, up space. Take up all I, the space. I love being the center of attention. I don't celebrate my birthday week. I celebrate a birthday month. Like I am a big personality, <laughs> but I still had to figure this out in dating. And so my version of that was that I'm an extremely anxiously attached dater. I was always meeting these guys. I was going into this mindset of, I have to chase them. I have to prove to them that I'm worthy. I have to convince them to like me. If this was a project at work, I'd be a warrior and I'd go after it. And this is a project in love and I'm going to go after it. I was just so into the chase. And when I worked with a dating coach and, you know, whether you want to use the terms feminine and masculine energy, not my favorite paradigm, but you know, we, we did use those terms. Then I realized I needed somebody who was going to choose me back. And I needed to find a secure guy that made me feel happy as opposed to an avoidant attached guy who made me feel anxiety, but which I confused for chemistry. And so that was a major shift, Not right? I'm the, I'm the big, I'm the larger than life person. I'm the person who loves to be center of attention. I could have sat there saying I'm too much and people can't handle me. But instead I, I was like, wait, I'm choosing guys that don't like me. What would it be like to choose a guy who does like me? <laughs> what a simple question. And, yeah. and, and, and there's so many challenges in that, which is now we have to be met. Now we have to be received. Now someone's going to look us back in the eye. I identify with a lot of stuff you said, because for me too, I'm more prone to anxiety and attachment. I 
really tended to love avoiding people as it mm-hmm. happens. Mm-hmm. And I would over pursue. And I remember mm-hmm. having this moment with my partner, Kylie, where she's more avoidant. Thank you know, thank God we got through that. But what was and for me too is I just had this moment where I was like, how can she ever step towards me if I'm always standing in the space she's supposed to be in? I mean, I just really appreciate what you're saying because it, what it calls forth is responsibility of self. Like, yes, I can be a lot. And I knew that if someone said, can you be too much? I know that there'd be a part of me that was like, yeah, I can. I can I can come on a little strong. I can over pursue. And I think there's something beautiful in the humility of that because you finally meet the part of yourself that thinks you need to do that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love the word humility used in this context because like, you know, I just said all the stuff about how I like to be larger than life, but I feel like I learned more about dating relationships from my husband than he's learned from me. And it was really dating a secure partner for the first time that short circuited my bad patterns and helped me make new decisions. And there's this story that comes to mind where I was walking down the street in San Francisco. He made me mad about something. Uh, you know, we were, we weren't in person. We were, we were texting and I just went into this protest mode, right? Which is kind of the red, the red zone for avoidant, for anxious people. And I, you know, I take out my phone and I'm typing away and I, I'm basically <laughs> flooded with emotion and I'm telling him all the things he did wrong and why I'm so angry. And I, it's like, it's like, I really feel like the Hulk in these moments and the anger is taking <laughs> over. And in my head, I was like, I know what happens. I write this to him. We get in a fight. Then I turn off my phone and then we make up later, right? That was the pattern that I'd established with these avoiding guys. And instead he wrote back and said, sounds like this is something that we should discuss in person. And it just blew my mind. He wasn't gaslighting me. He didn't tell me that I was wrong or that my interpretation of the situation was anything but important. He said, this feels like something to talk about in person. We had only been dating for a few months at that point. And that is the moment where I I felt like it was something different. And he is the child of a therapist. He has excellent communication skills. He just understood that this was not going to be resolved well in a text fight. And we did talk about it in person. I had totally calmed down by then. And then we resolved it. And it's those small moments when you date a secure person where you're like, this is not the only way. There is another way. But if you stay in that anxious avoidant loop and you're always repeating the same pattern, you don't actually realize that you can step outside that matrix and love in a different way. Claps, standing ovation. Thank you. So for people who are single, Uh And there's a mix, so we're going to hit both. So if you're listening, you're like, I'm in a relationship, pause. We're like, no, it's coming. Don't worry. Curious, what is your your sort of number one piece of dating advice for someone who's single? My number one piece of dating advice for somebody who's single is get out of your own way. And that really takes a lot of self-work to understand how you're getting in your own way. So you need to do that self-audit, whether it's learning your attachment style whether it's my three dating types framework, whatever it is, you need to say, I'm making choices. What are the patterns here and how can I break them? And sometimes we can't see that for ourselves. So sit down with a friend and say, I'm not gonna hold this against you. What do you think I'm doing wrong? And that gives your friend the chance to say, Mark, you're way too picky. That girl was perfect, but she wore socks with sandals to your second date. So you- I mean, that is a red flag. I just want to point out. <laughs> That's just- <laughs> Yeah. Like for clarity's sake, Kai did not wear <laughs> socks with sandals, but I- But yeah, or maybe they'll say, Mark, you're not picky enough. 
you keep dating people who live in basements with no windows who don't take themselves seriously. How are they going to take the relationship seriously? And so my number one piece of advice for single people is take a look at your behavior, figure out your patterns, figure out how to make different choices, and then get your friends on your side, helping you stay accountable to making different choices in the future. I mean, that call to a truthful friend, because I find we often sort of put a distance to the people who tell us the truth of the things we don't want to see. And so I love the invitation. Like, don't talk to your friend who has the same fucking dating patterns as you. Because they're going to be like, you're doing everything right. Bumble has an infection. Ours has a virus and it only has unavailable people. That's so funny. But I think- My dating app is broken. Nobody's responding. Right, exactly. It's like, must be a flaw in the app. No, no, no. So go to the friend who tells you the frickin' mm-hmm. truth. The one who you're afraid to ask, actually, sounds like a pretty good one to talk to. Yeah. Yeah. I, thanks for calling that out, because I do think there's a nuance to this. It's like, don't call out the friend who benefits from you being single, the one who wants you to be their wingman or wingwoman. You know, don't call out the friend who always just empower, like, you know, it's nice to have somebody who empowers you, but they're also enabling as you. It's like, who's the friend who's the mirror? Who's the friend who has yeah. given you hard feedback in the past? And create a space for them to be honest by saying, I won't hold this against you and hold yourself to that. Do not two months later be like, well, you just think I'm too picky. So I can't tell you about my dating life. It's like, no, 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 no. If you want them to be vulnerable about what's going on, you need to protect that vulnerability moving forward. So for people in relationships, what is your number one piece of advice? For people in relationships, my number one piece of advice is very influenced by the Gottmans, who I'm sure are, you know, heroes, heroes in your mind as well. And I've had, I've been lucky enough to take some of their courses and even, you know, six months after Scott and I started dating, we went to their art and science of love course in Seattle And that was a really cool way, like six months in to build this foundation. But my number one piece of advice from them is the idea that you need to turn towards bids and you need to do small things often. And so uh, for people who aren't familiar with this concept, a bid is a verbal or nonverbal way of saying, I want to connect. And so it might be, hey, how was your day? It might be doing the dishes and sighing really loudly. And that's an opportunity for your partner to connect with you. And turning towards would be, my day was like this. How was yours? Or, oh, do you need help with the dishes? What's wrong? You can also turn away from somebody, which is just ignoring the bid, or turn against them, which is saying something like, oh, can't you see I'm working? Why are you talking to me? And what they found after studying many, many, many couples in different scenarios is that these relationship masters, these couples that stay together for many years, they turn towards bids 86% of the time. And these relationship disasters, these couples that break up or are together unhappily, they only turn towards each other 33% of the time. And so when you're thinking about your relationship, you might think, we need monthly date night. We need to schedule sex. We need to have you know, a trip to Hawaii every year, right? You're thinking about like some of these things. It's like, no, it's just in the minute by minute choosing to invest in your partner, putting your phone down, putting your laptop away. Stop fetishizing productivity. You can send that email later. Connect with the person that you have chosen to be with and look them in the eye and say, my day was like this. How was your day? Because that's how you avoid building up resentment. That's how you keep the connection alive, not with you know six-day all-inclusive trip to Hawaii. Yeah, the constant like trying to hit another high in order to avoid the truth of what's actually freaking going on. 
Yeah, or trying to relight the pilot light when it's out. Why don't you just keep it lit through this daily investment? Yeah, that seems, and I think to people this, I mean, we all want this sort of like magic pill to make mm-hmm. relationships work, to figure it out. to, And it's like, actually, it's that simple. It's in the micro moments that it's not in the big birthdays or the big anniversaries and not saying those aren't important. Sure. But it's in like, how do you celebrate each other every day? How do you tell the truth to each other every day? Do you? Do you actually like when your partner says, hey, like my partner, when she's reading something, she'll go, huh? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about it. You know, because so I, I, I know. It. That's such a cute bit. I love it. Right. She wants you to say, what did you read? She doesn't. Right. That's turning. But. 10 years from now, are you going to remember to do that? Or are you going to be like, oh, that's an annoying trait. She's a loud reader. No, you have to keep it going. You have to be like, she's curious. She's passionate. She learns by teaching. Like, right. It's like, it's like really investing in that. And I feel like, you know, you're a public persona. I imagine you get a lot of external validation. I imagine a lot of people expect a lot from you and you are giving them your energy throughout the day. Yeah, And I, I'm not on your level, but I'm in a similar situation where like I am giving a lot to other people. So what are we bringing home at night to our partners? Are we bringing them the scraps? Are we bringing them the leftovers? Are we saying, you know, I can't possibly say another word. I just gave a six hour conference thing. Or are we like, no, you're the most important person in my world. And I always save this, this reserve for you. And I think that's something that I have failed at many times and I'm actively working on because I was like, wait, I'm being a hypocrite. I'm talking about dating relationships, but I'm not showing up for my partner. And then doing a bunch of work for the Gottmans, making these videos about bids. I was like, damn, I need to follow the advice that I'm giving. And that's been the biggest change for me. And I think why we got married instead of breaking up is that I learned to really make those daily small investments. The depth of that of of recognizing that we are responsible, we can contribute to the relational depth, that we have a choice. We have a choice to have the hard conversation or not. And you spoke to that decision of like to break up or get married. I'm sure it was a lot more complex Mm -hmm. than that. Uh, (laughs) So I'm curious for people listening, how do you decide even that? Like, Mm -hmm. it sounds like you were at a decision tree and I know in your book, you, you cover that, right? About breaking up, should you break up? So I'm curious if you can just sort of walk sure. us through that process or or some insight in that. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by breakups. I think I wish people talked about them more. I wish there was more guidelines for them. I think, you know, they're really, really heartbreaking and heart-wrenching moments in people's lives. And so when I set out to do the work I'm doing, I never thought I would be a breakup coach or a breakup consultant, but it just kept happening because people were like, I can't sleep at night and I need to do something right now. And I need to call you at 11 PM and talk about this. And so now I feel empowered by it because I'm like, well, one of the best ways to get people into great relationships is helping them save good ones or helping them get out of bad or mediocre ones, which eventually will lead to better ones. And so I, I love frameworks. I have another framework for this, which is hitchers and ditchers. And so I've found that people tend to have two patterns. One is they are ditchers. They stay in relationships way too short and they basically jump from three to six month relationships to three to six month relationships. They're always pursuing the honeymoon period. They're always pursuing the new relationship energy. And when that fades, which inevitably does, instead of saying this is the the natural transition to a relationship, they think, oh, this must be the wrong person. I'm going to move on to somebody else. 
And so when I work with ditchers, I help them understand that relationships go through phases and that if you are somebody that wants a long-term commitment, eventually you have to overcome that fear or that avoidant tendency and actually commit to somebody and build something with them. Because, you know, two decades of three to six month long relationships, it doesn't add up to anything. It doesn't provide that depth of knowing that, you know, the richness of juiciness of life that you can really get from having a partner. Well, in that space that's beyond the unknown, mm-hmm. you know, I really recognize that so many, you know, when I had previously been quite heartbroken and then I became the king of casual, the king of like not even three months, or three days, you know, mm-hmm. where I was so terrified of what was on the other side. And I think you speak to that space of like, what's beyond that, that you're afraid of? Mm-hmm. Like, are you afraid that you're mm-hmm. going to have to do the work, that you're going to have to know more about yourself, that you might not have it figured out? I think that's part of the, you know, when we think about the qualities of long-term partners in the research, I believe the two most important qualities are kindness and generosity. And, you know, the other day I was listening to someone give a talk, I can't remember who, and I wish I did just so I could credit them, but they said, if you just sit and think about your relationship and you ask yourself, is it reliable? Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, like how many people would say no to that? I mean, gosh, so many. And and I think the follow-up question is, are you reliable to the Mm -hmm. relationship too? Like Mm -hmm. you can't be like, oh, my partner's not reliable if you're not. And I found that just to be a really insightful question. I love that. And it's interesting because I've been noticing in my interviews about my book, I keep saying how when I chose my husband, Scott, I went for the life partner, not the prom date. And I have another thing I call it, like I said, fuck the spark. And I went for the slow burn and that I truly think he's the slow burn life partner. But I'm like, am I selling him short? I'm like, he's reliable. He's not the most charming, but he's, and I'm like, make him sound boring. I'm like, he's hilarious. He's so kind. He empowers me. I am my best self around him. And I was like, I think people equate reliability with boredom or, you know, just bare minimum settling. And it's like, no, honey, like reliable. That's what you want. Reliable is the 50% of my brain that was wondering if the guy from Burning Man would (laughs) ever want to date me it's now quiet and I can like crush my work and I can have a bunch of jobs and I can coach and I can, right. It's like that was taking up so much space. It's like reliable is what allows you to live your best life because you are not always worrying about the ceiling falling down. You're not in this anxious loop or this avoidant loop. You are actually in your vigilance to do other things. A hundred percent. Like, reliable. Let's, 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 that's the sexiest shit. Boundaries and reliability are the hottest. Like if you got to those two things, you're going to be, and you can communicate that in how you write on your Mm -hmm. dating profile. Mm -hmm. I think at least. I love that. You know, if somebody wrote, I show up where I say I will, you don't have to double check if we're meeting. If I said we're meeting, we're meeting. I would be like, get that person right now. Like, do you understand how great that is? I think people are just, this is where the rom-com drama comes in. People are so caught up on, if he wants me, then he must not be good enough for me. Or like, I need to go after something. You called it like, you know, the pursuant mode. Like, what if we just reframe that? And we're like, you choose somebody, they choose you. You make them a priority. They make you a priority. That is a double opt-in. That's what you want. You don't want like convincing somebody because then in the end, you know, it's just, that's just not the dynamic that you're going for. 
That's why I loved Justin McLeod because mm-hmm. he, I heard him say on yeah. the podcast, how I built this, I heard him say, you don't find the one you create it. And I was mm-hmm. like, create the love, Justin. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was yeah. feeling it. And yeah, I felt really, okay. So I'm curious if yeah. people are like in that dating zone mm-hmm. and you work with Hinge. So curious if you could just tell us like a little bit about that. I used Hinge in its when it went through mm-hmm. its iteration. So I used it when it was bridging you through people you know. But yeah, can you tell us? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I can get into all the hinge stuff. But I'll just finish one thing about the breakup yeah, thing, which is, course. so that ditcher was the one who does the three to six month relationships and they don't see that this will never add up to anything. They need to change their behavior. And then the hitcher is the person who stays in relationships too long. And they basically say, well, I've been with her for five years. The first six months were great. The last four and a half years were bad, but what if we get back to that to that first that six months? Yeah. And, you know, I, I sometimes I say to people on the phone, I'm like, okay, like imagine you watched a TV show. Season one was great. Seasons <laughs> two through five were bad. Are you going to watch season six or are you going to start a new show? And it's like, you know, there's all these cognitive biases, right? Loss aversion, status quo bias. We just stay where we are. It's like, no, you have to go through the breakup. It's going to be hard, but there's a better relationship waiting for you on the other side. And so in this work with breakups and hitchers and ditchers, I've developed this question that it's kind of seems silly, but it's actually really helped people kind of get to their, to their gut reaction. And so I'll, I'll ask it to you, which is if your partner were a piece of clothing in your closet, something that you own, what would she be? Mm -hmm. She'd be my favorite sexy flannel shirt, comfortable, nice. Is that good? I feel like that was right. No, that's great. Yeah. I'd wear Um, it all day. I love that. Yeah. But I'm, I'm laughing because I have a similar answer, which is I feel like my husband is my favorite pair of like flannel pajamas, which like <laughs> is sort of like a little like character that I play and it says bare cheeks on the butt and you can like flip it open and it was a gift and it just feels like wearing a hug. It feels like being home. Yeah. So, that's how my shirt feels, you know, yeah. just think of like there's familiarity, there's a coziness, there's yeah. a safety, there's a reliability. Mm-hmm. And right. I think flannel does have that feeling and, you know, you... I ask people this question. I'm like, gut reaction. Don't overthink it. And people, you know, one guy said, my boyfriend is a wool sweater. The sweater keeps me warm, but it's itchy. So I need to take it off. Or this girl said to me, my boyfriend is a scrubby old t-shirt. I would wear it to the gym, but I hope nobody sees me in it. Mm. So you hear these answers and you're like, I didn't say that. Your pro con list didn't say that. Like you said that this is how you feel. And it helps people really tap into that kind of, internal gut knowledge of like, yeah, sure. It is going to be inconvenient to like split up the stuff in our apartment and it's going to suck to tell my parents and it's going to suck to tell our friends, et cetera. But I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. This doesn't feel right to me. And so I developed that wardrobe test question to really help people who are having a hard time choosing get it what's actually going on for them. So there's, you know, you, you see what's my tendency. Am I a hitcher or am I a ditcher? Not everybody is that, but a lot of us, what's the wardrobe test question. And then also have I brought my best self to this relationship? Mm. If you have one foot out the door and you're a consultant and you're traveling all the time and you actually haven't tried to make the relationship better, then maybe do that before leaving. And so breakups are really serious. You're holding your emotions in the hand, in your hand, you're holding somebody else's life in your hand. And I think people should take this decision you know, very seriously. But part of that is understanding your tendency, the wardrobe test question, and then also what can you do to fix this before you give up on it? Well, this actually reminds me, one thing I wanted to ask you, which you tap back into my brain, so thank you, is, okay, so why is it though, from a behavioral science perspective, 
why is it that we're, when we're in the dating process, we can not be sort of discerning or like mm-hmm. ignore certain qualities and, and that like we have a list, we say what we want and then we're in the dating process. And what is the behavioral science? Because you speak to it in your book. Yeah. I mean, this is such a rich question and there's so many details to it. And so from a brain science side, we talked about this, that there's all these hormones flowing through your body. There's the oxytocin, the, you know, partnering pairing hormone that makes you feel really attached to somebody after you have sex with them. There's the fact that your brain is on the drug of love. And so all of that is really clouding you for, you know, between let's say two and four years where you just feel so obsessed with this person. And so first of all, there's just a lot of hormonal things getting in the way from you making a clear-headed decision, which is sometimes why it's good to ask your friends about the relationship. The other thing is that there's just a bunch of cognitive biases, these clouds and judgment that hold us back from making good decisions. And so one of them is a bias called the present bias. Sounds obvious, but it's we focus on pleasure in the moment over long-term outcomes. That's why people eat too much. That's why people don't save for retirement. It's because we're just focused on what feels good now, not the long-term investment. That's why you want to go for the prom date, but not the life partner, but you can make a change. Another bias is something called the status quo bias. We just like to keep things as they are. It feels really scary to veer off course, right? In a breakup, people think I'm on a path to break up would be veer to the right. And that would be really scary. Well, what if you think about it as you're on a path and you are at a T-junction going to the right is breaking up, going to the left is staying together. Either way, you're making a choice. And so there's just so many things that distract us from things where we we make the wrong decision. And I'll, I'll finish this by saying one of the biggest issues in modern dating is that people think they know what they want, but they're often wrong. People come to me and they say, I, like I need... That a six foot, six foot tall guy who makes six figure income, or I know I need somebody with the graduate degree. I know I only like redheads and they're so focused. They say, just find that person for me. I don't need your coaching. And I'm like, but you could be so wrong about your preferences. You don't know what side of you that brings out. And you've been dating this type of person for 10 years. And it's never worked out. What if you're a little more humble and you say, I'm open to dating different types of people. I'm open to discovering that my type might be the opposite of what I thought. And it's often in that shift from, I know what I want to, I want to see who makes me happy. That's where people really Mm. find their long-term partner. That shift, that shift, as you said before, like the, take the slow burn over this. I love that. And you said earlier too, that you had mistaken anxiety for chemistry. And Mm -hmm. I think that again continues is like, can you stay in the space of not needing to chase the high of uncertainty and the high of ambivalence, which is so weird to think that those things create this allure or this chemistry, Mm -hmm. but it's such biology sort of Mm -hmm. hijacking us from reality or preventing us from a future that could be incredible. Yeah, I I agree with every single thing you just said. And yeah, I mean, I think we could think about it more. It's like, why do we go to movies that scare us? Why do we like shows that have plot twists, right? It's like that uncertainty that what's going to happen. It's that page turner. And so we get addicted to the drama, but like, look, that's totally fine when you're watching a Netflix show, but in your own life, I don't think you want to be surprised on the next page. I think you want that reliability that we talked about. I remember when I used to watch Saw. I can't believe I watched the Saw series. It's literally (laughs) the most traumatizing freaking horror movie ever. Now, if a horror movie comes on, I'm like, not a chance. I know what it does to my nervous system. And so you think of like 
the same thing relationally. I like that you gave the horror movie example because you think relationally, like, why do we put ourselves through horror movies? You know, because we do. And our bodies are like, this is this is the same thing we did last week. Can we just not do this? And we're like, no, it seems good. Swipe right. You know, yeah. And, yeah. I'm sure you've seen these couples where they're like, oh, we fight all the time. We're just so passionate. It's like, what if we reframe that passion as you have a lot of bad habits built up? There's not a lot of respect here. And you're actually driving each other crazy all the time, but you call it passion. It's like we have these terms, right? Butterflies equals yeah. chemistry, but we we have, you know, it has really good branding. Well, let's give anxiety the actual branding, which is that <laughs> when somebody doesn't make you, when you don't know how somebody feels about you, what you're experiencing is uncertain and anxiety. It's not chemistry and it's not butterflies. Which is such a recoding because if people, you know, in their childhood where there was ambivalence or anything like mm-hmm. that, and they're used to that, that turmoil in their tummy can just be coded as something else. So that it's not bringing, it's not informing them, which is really what it's doing is it's informing them to say, Hey, like take a left here. We used, we go right normally here and right sucks because we end up in a circle and right back at where we are, you know? So first, where can people find your book? And I'm sure imagine all the places, but if there's any specific place. Sure. Yeah. People can find the book in all the places. And if you liked the sound of my voice, I read the audiobook. If you didn't like the sound of my voice, buy the Kindle version or the hardcover. <laughs> and people can take the three dating tendencies quiz on my website, loganyuri.com. And yeah, they can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Logan Yuri. Thank you for being here and sharing. It's been such a fun conversation. And the conversational nature of your book is in a similar sort of voice and because it's Mm -hmm. your voice. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate what you bring to this space and the wisdom you shared with us today. Oh, thank you, Mark. You know, I've been a a fan for a long time and it's really cool to chat with you and realize you're a real person. You're thinking out (laughs) loud, you're growing, you're learning. And I had so much fun talking about this. And I really hope that people listening today feel empowered to make different choices for themselves. Oh, amen. And curious for the last piece, uh, when people are entering that dating world, if you could just sort of, because I really love the premise and the intention that Hinge was built upon. Mm -hmm. And I think that matters a lot. So I'm curious if you just want to give a little. Yeah. So yeah, Mark is referencing a podcast that Justin McLeod, the CEO and founder of Hinge just did on how I built this with Guy Raz. And one of the main ideas is that when when Hinge came out, it was similar to other dating apps at the time. And in 2016, there was this huge app refresh. They basically started from scratch and they said, we are about intentionality. We are about people who want to find relationships. And the app was redesigned from the ground up with features that help people do that. And so, for example, there's no swiping feature. If you want to interact with somebody, then you can like or comment on a picture of theirs or something that they wrote. There's these things called prompts where people can fill out things like my ideal plus one to a wedding date is, and it really gives you a chance to show different sides of your personality, to talk about who you are, what you're looking for. We really are focused on getting people off the app and onto great dates. And that's why Hinge's tagline is designed to be deleted. That's such a great tagline. It's the best. So just download it, check it out, hit it up, Hinge, if you're in that dating world. And, you know, as you say in your book, like most people wait to date and you're Mm -hmm. like, like, get on it. Some people are experiencing FODA, fear of dating again. And that's that's a term term we've been throwing around at Hinge, but it's true. And so for anyone who's taking time off during the pandemic or is hesitating, you know, just 
get out there. Dating is a skill. You only get better by practicing. Go one one step at a time and, and really see what opens up for you when you give yourself a chance. Don't die alone. I love it. How to not die alone. Right. That's the best. All right. Pick up her book. Logan, thank you so much. Go pick up How to Not Die Alone. Make sure you follow her on Instagram. And much love. Thank you, Logan. Thank you. Thank you. 